You're listening to 100 p.m. at Industry, the Product Conference, Episode 2. Our guest is Dan Olson, author of the Lean Product Playbook. 100 p.m. is the web's fastest growing resource for product managers. If you'd like to learn more about our guests, visit 100productmanagers.com slash industry and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. If you love what we're doing, please head over to iTunes and leave us a great review to help others discover our show. Let's dive in and say hello to Dan Olson. Hi, my name is Dan Olson. I'm the author of the Lean Product Playbook and a product management consultant. I'm super excited that you're here. I think the book is really exciting. It's so accessible. I understand that part of that has to do with the fact that you're an engineer, which means you've got a pragmatic approach to presenting information. It is a very pragmatic approach to how do you ultimately go from idea to execution and at least beat the odds of having a successful product in market. So I thought that we could talk a little bit today about uh, some of the steps in your framework. I think our audience could really benefit from, well, they could definitely benefit from reading the book, but I think the benefit from hearing kind of some of your unique perspective on the challenges that can come up as you move through each of these phases of the pyramid, as it were. So at the beginning, we talk a little bit about identifying a target market. And to identify your target market, it's a hypothesis. It's, I think I've got something that's good for these people. How do you go from, I think I've got something that's good for these people to, yes, this is the target market that we should pursue. What are those indicators that we're on the right path? Yeah, the tool that I recommend using there is segmentation. So basically as a way to kind of clarify your hypotheses about who the target customer is, you know, it's easy to just kind of say at a superficial level, like we're targeting SMBs or we're targeting millennials, but that's not really specific enough. And so in the book, I talk about how you can use demographic segmentation, psychographic segmentation, um, behavioral and needs based. And so I think what you want to do is even before you try to like test a solution with those folks is to be able to make sure you are clear on who they are and that you can recruit them and talk to them and understand their pain points. And what you want to see is um, some consistency in the pain points and the problems that they have so that uh, you know that you, when you kind of hear that consistency, you kind of know you've defined your target customer well enough. Right. People ask this all the time, so I've got to ask it to you. How many interviews should I do, Dan, in order to advance to the next step of the process? Yeah, people are always looking for some magic answer. And I think uh, I also get a related version of the question, which is how, how long should I allocate for this process? And the, the thing is, it's an iterative process. So you're doing discovery. Um, it's like we're on a journey and we're not quite sure how to get to the destination of product market fit. We don't know how long it's going to take. We don't know how many iterations it's going to take, right? But what I recommend is talking to people in groups of five to eight and then pattern matching what you see. So when you talk to groups of five or eight people, you're going to basically try to, in a somewhat rigorous way, capture what are the things that you're learning from them and then, you know, which of those people said each of those things or expressed each of those things. And you want to get to the point where you're basically seeing convergence among the people that you're talking to. And between ways, if you're showing them a product, what you want to see, there's going to be questions and concerns and negative comments that they bring up as far as things they don't like or they don't understand or things are missing. And what you want to see is those negative comments as you basically do a wave pattern match and address those comments and revise your product and then test it with the next wave, you want to see those comments go away basically. It's this weird sense of progress that 
you know, the people you're talking to in the next wave didn't see your product in the previous wave. So they don't go, hey, Dan, awesome job fixing that registration flow. They just don't complain about the broken registration flow. And so you want to get to the point where you're not really hearing too many negative comments. And hopefully you're starting to hear some positive comments as well. Like, oh, wow, I could really see how this would meet my needs. And I don't know if that's going to take two iterations or three iterations, you know. So the number of people total you need to talk to is a little bit indeterminate. Now, if you've done 10 iterations and you're pounding your head against the wall, then it may be time to pivot, right? Yeah, I mean, well, the thing about validated learning is it's about risk mitigation. So ultimately, there isn't a defined, this is when you should go forward. There's just sort of a series of checkpoints. And what you're really looking for is, do I feel confident based on these two people I spoke to or these 20 people that mm -hmm. I spoke to that I actually have identified a, a real potential problem or, or constellation of problems that are worth pursuing. And, and you describe that as that next layer up in the pyramid, which is the underserved needs. So I'm out there, I'm interviewing different customers, I'm starting to get a sense of the underserved needs. And this really becomes the foundation for the solution that I'm going to create. But there are other people that are out there in the market also doing things. So how do I begin to organize which needs are the most important to pursue, which ones are in fact the most underserved? Yeah, so I recommend, you know, I recommend as a team, you know, brainstorming, like once you pick a certain target customer in a certain area, that you wanna to try to make their lives better in. That's a fun part where you get to brainstorm what are all the different ways our team could potentially help people. And then what you wanna do as you do customer discovery interviews is come out of the interviews with a sense for each of those needs that we could address, how important is that need to the customer? Right? Just even if it's low, medium, high, it's not anything too rigorous. And how satisfied are they today with how well it's getting met? And basically what we wanna do is, you know, life's too short to focus on low importance needs. You're not gonna be really creating a lot of value for the customer, so you wanna weed those out. You wanna focus on high importance needs. And within the high importance needs, some of them are gonna be perfectly satisfied today with existing products. And so to go after those would be difficult, not to say you couldn't do it, but you really need to get clear on how you're gonna be like 10X better. That's where 10X better comes into play. But if you analyze the market, you can often find opportunities that are high importance, but low satisfaction. And so that's where there's really an opportunity to create customer value. So you wanna use that importance versus satisfaction framework in my book to prioritize. And then to your competitive question, that's the next step in value prop, which is really, okay, out of all those ideas for benefits that we could go after, which ones are we actually gonna say our product delivers on? And how are we gonna be better than the competition, the other ways that people are getting those needs met? And that's where, um, before I moved out to Silicon Valley and went to business school, I studied uh, lean manufacturing, got a master's in industrial engineering, where I studied the Kano model. The Kano model is a way to classify benefits or features into must-have features, performance features, and delighters. And so what you wanna do is, for your category, basically create a table and list one per row, each of those must-have benefits, each of the performance benefits, and each of the delighter benefits. And then what you wanna do is create a column for each of your competitors uh, and a column for your own product. And then you want to score your competitors like low, medium, high on how well they're doing on each of those different customer needs. And that's really the backdrop that you should be looking at before you pick what your product's value proposition is going to be. That's basically the essence of product strategy. And it's super easy to be tempted to say we're going to be the best at every single one and put a high in every one. But the reality is that's not really feasible because of the resource constraints that you have. And it's also not very clear positioning or very focusing for your company. And so one of my favorite definitions of strategy is it means saying no to something. If you're saying <laughs> yes to everything, then, and you know, yesterday in my workshop, I was you know, telling a funny story about you know, enterprise sales 
team, they go out, they call in a client and it's like, hey, is your product gonna have feature A? If it does, we'll sign the contract. Oh yeah, yeah, it's gonna have feature A. And they come back and say, hey guys, you have to build feature A. And then they go out to the next client. Hey, is your product, is your product gonna have feature B? Oh yeah, yeah, well, they say yes to everything, right? Because they have a quota and they get paid to. So that's the opposite of being strategic, right? I have a lot of Steve Jobs quotes in the book and one of them is, he says for every yes, when they decide on something that's gonna be in the product or product design decision, there have been a thousand no's before that. So anyway, what matters the most is what's the performance benefit that we're gonna be the best on compared to the competitors and what's our unique delighter? You don't really compete on must-haves. And so your performance benefit, your top performance benefit and your delighter are what are your unique differentiators. And you wanna get crystal clear on that before you go into the MVP feature set discussion to make sure that your MVP actually focuses on delivering those benefits. So in your framework, that elusive product market fit is that space in between the identified underserved needs of the customer and those value propositions that, that you're going to put forth. And this term product market fit gets bandied about a lot. And I think there are a lot of different interpretations for our audience benefit. What's your definition of product sure. market fit? Yeah. I mean, anytime you have a new movement, it's going to have new concepts and buzzwords. And so like MVP is another one that's pretty hotly debated, people arguing about what it is or what it isn't. Product market fit, people talk about it a little differently. They talk about it basically very simplistically as if it's a true or false condition of existence. They might say, for example, oh, Box succeeded because they had product market fit. Startup X sadly failed because they did not have product market fit, right? So, but if you look out there, there's not a lot of good guidance on what it really means or how to achieve it. And so that's basically why I wrote this book after working as a product manager at Intuit and then working as a product leader at startups and having my own startup and consulting and speaking to all these product managers, I realized that there was like basically the set of conditions that had to hold true in order to achieve product market fit, like a set of hypotheses that you had to get right. And that's basically what led to the product market fit pyramid with its five layers. Right. So you've got to get the target market right. Mm -hmm. You've got to get the needs right. You've got to get the value proposition right. right. What else do you have to get right? Well, once you agree, once you've done that value prop grid exercise and gotten clear on your unique differentiators, then the next step is what's our MVP feature set going to be, right? And we want to focus on MVP so that we don't overbuild before we realize we're heading in the wrong direction or made some bad assumptions, basically. And so, as I said, this is where we actually, in my book, we didn't talk about much is problem space versus solution space is a really important concept. Problem space is where customer needs live and solution space is where features and designs and functionality and live product lives. And so this feature set layer is where we first transition from problem space, our value prop, into the solution space. So when you're basically brainstorming features for MVP, it's really important to tie them directly back to the benefits that are in your value proposition, right? And then the question becomes, this is one of the hardest decisions. It's super easy again to just say, oh yeah, our MVP has to have X, Y, Z in the kitchen sink. It's that discipline to say, well, yeah, we're gonna have the must-haves, we're gonna have the bare minimum for our value prop differentiators. Is that enough or not? Let's try it, right? And that's what I call your MVP candidate because you don't yet know, customers haven't told you that it's viable. In the next step, you ask what else is UX design. And I'm a big proponent of actually trying to validate as much as you can before you do any coding or building. And you can actually get quite far with today's prototyping tools, like clickable prototypes, tappable prototypes, you can get a lot of great feedback if you have a high fidelity, relatively high interactivity prototype. You can get a lot of feedback to iterate and change your product and fix your feature set, fix your value prop, fix your UX design before you go and code. Yeah, I mean, I love the distinction of problem space and solution space. Just by articulating it, it gives 
uh, people an insight into how important it is to solve real problems, as you sort of spoke about. And I see this all the time. And frankly, product people are guilty of it. It's like if you're a designer, if you're an engineer, you're already at a disadvantage because you start thinking of a solution and you can start coding it or start designing it right away without stopping to do those first few steps, which is, I think, again, why this framework is helpful. It's like first we walk, then we run kind of idea. At the MVP, this is, in my opinion, another place where it can all fall apart because what I see a lot with founders is that fear of releasing. Mm -hmm. And so you get hung up on, we need to have this, oh, we can't put it in front of customers if it doesn't have you know X, Y, Z thing. What advice can you offer at that MVP features planning stage to as you described, really keep it focused on meeting the value propositions and not more than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's really interesting. I mean, it's one of the hardest things to do is to have the discipline to say, well, let's try the MVP without that in there, you know, as, as painful as it may seem. And, you know, one of the things is I get people that read my book and they come to my workshop like, Dan, I love your book, totally get MVP. But here's why my MVP needs to have features A, B, C, D, and <laughs> Look, I get it. I read your book. So it's almost like you need a, an objective third-party opinion because you're so close to it. You know what I mean? It's helpful. So a lot of times I'll come in and be like, okay, let's start picking this apart. And there's almost always 80-20 at play, right? The whole 80-20, like you don't need all those things. And it's tough. Look, I've been a founder too. It's really tough. And I, the temptation to overbuild and not launch it is there. But, you know, I think it's the converse point is, well, it's pretty easy to add that if we find out from people they don't like it. And that's the other thing. That's why I'm a big proponent of testing with prototypes. You could learn that in wireframes like that. And, and you know, sometimes, you know, uh, people are reluctant to test wireframes with customers. But what you can get is those course details of like, let's try the wireframe without that feature that we're debating whether it needs to be in there or not and see what customers say. And, you know, you may show it to them and nobody complains. Or you may show it to them and they go, are you crazy? You don't have feature A in here? There's no way I can use this product without feature A, right? How easy and cheap was that versus just saying, no, I don't feel good about it. Let's just build it. And we take three months to build that feature, right? So easy and cheap to test that risk or that assumption with a wireframe. Yeah, no, it's absolutely right. And you do describe in the book actually about how this concept of MVP really stays forever in the process. And I think this is important. You know, yes, there's the official MVP, the first product build, whatever it is, could be a landing page, could be something a little bit more robust than that. But as and if you determine to proceed from there, MVP really almost becomes like MVF, that minimum viable feature. And so shifting that definition toward a more experimental mindset, that's really kind of at the heart of what you're talking about. The definition of MVP is maybe dangerous to hang on too tightly to. Yeah, and I think it just gets misused. You know, one of the other things is uh, I have this diagram that I share with basically from the, uh, the head of UX design from MailChimp, Aaron Walters, who wrote a great book called Designing for Emotion. And he has another pyramid where you can kind of assess a product as far as how functional it is, how reliable it is, how useful it is, how delightful it is. And what I see is people know they can't build the whole pyramid in one fell swoop, and they know they have to build a portion of it for an MVP. But what they do is they use MVP as an excuse to just focus on the functionality and it ends up being buggy and hard to use. Right. Right. That's just that people use MVP as an excuse for shortcuts and that. Now, the interesting thing is how do you think that's going to test with customers? It's not going to test well. Like if they can't find your feature or figure out how to use it or they run into bugs, it's going to get in the way of them seeing the value that you've built. It's like 
It doesn't matter if you have the world's best like flight booking engine, if nobody can find it or figure out how to use it, you know, it's great that you have these algorithms that can find the shortest flight. So it's true that you only want to bite off a bit of the pyramid, but for the functionality that you do put in your MVP, you should make sure it's reliable enough and usable enough. I don't expect it to be perfect, but it needs to be reliable enough and usable enough so that you can get a good signal when you test it with people, right? So I see MVP misused, and then what happens, we go, oh, this MVP thing doesn't work, let's go back to waterfall. Use it as an excuse to kind of shoot everything down. Yeah. And so, yeah, and then you mentioned feature. This process can be obviously used at the product level. It can also be used at the feature level. And I think that, in a sense, because the scope of a feature is smaller, it can be easier in a sense. So, okay, we're adding a new feature. We already have a product. We already have customers. So we already have the people to talk to. Let's just go. And, and in those cases, you tend to see people more often, like, use wireframes or clickable prototypes to test things before they're built. Yeah, it's strange that we're more comfortable to do it later. Like now that we yeah, have a fully functioning right. product with customers, we completely embrace this idea of presenting wireframes or clickable prototypes. But when we're starting at zero, it feels like there's more at stake somehow. And I always think, isn't in spending your life savings on a bad product idea the highest stakes yeah. of all? Well, I think one of the things that comes up is if people embrace these kind of lean concepts and customer-centric concepts, is great, I'm up for it. I don't know how to find the customers. Like it's just right. So one of the reasons that you see it, existing businesses do it is they have thousands or millions of customers. It's super easy to say, hey, let's go get some customers and talk to them, right? Yeah. So that's, it's just the availability of customers to talk to facilitates and makes it lower friction yeah. for people. But I mean, if you can't solve that problem in discovery, how do you expect that you're going to actually sure. solve it in business? And this is another place that I see founders go wrong a lot is they focus so much on getting the product right and they haven't spent any of that early stage opportunity focusing on how do we find those customers? And in fact, I think you can be using MVPs almost concurrently that even as you're testing out the value propositions with a real product, with real prospects, you could be testing out your strategies for finding and acquiring those segments that you've identified early on. Definitely, I think the feedback loop of trying to recruit target customers is learning in and of itself because you're not gonna be 100% right at first and thinking, okay, SMBs that meet this criteria are our target market and you go try to reach them, you may realize there are issues reaching that particular audience or you'll learn like what are the, what are the ways to talk about these pain points or our value prop that resonate with them that get us better turnout for our recruiting. How do you know when you got to product market fit? Hmm. You know, a lot of my book is focused on when you're kind of building a new product and it's very qualitative. You know, I'll, I'll give most of the book just talking about qualitative techniques. I don't really talk about actually using A-B testing or analytics until very late in the book, like after you've launched. Um, now, if you're at a big company that has a large install base, then you can do A-B testing right away. But it's mainly a qualitative exercise. And I think you really need to get in there and talk to customers to really understand what their needs are. Um, it, it's really about talking to people. There's no shortcut. I mean, the appeal of, let's just go do an A-B test. I understand that it's like quick and it's nice to have numbers, but there's no real way uh, when you're building a new product, you gotta talk to people. And so that approach of basically talking to people in depth, the one-on-one -on -one understanding what they're all about, interviewing them, I like to give that personify by calling it the Oprah technique, because she's <laughs> the best at sitting down with people and getting to know what makes them tick and really understanding them. And then the other technique, the quantitative technique, uh, it's all about analytics and numbers. There you don't actually care what any particular person says, you just wanna know what the averages are and what the statistics say. That's what I call the Spock technique. And so they're both valuable techniques. So in the qualitative, you know, it's basically like we were saying, you're talking in groups of five to eight, and you're hoping you wanna see the negative comments go down and the positive comments go up, right? 
you can ask people, hey, would you be willing to pay $10 for this or not? It's always iffy because that's people saying they would pay without paying, but it can be an indicator. And in the example I share in the book, the first time I ran it, nobody had any interest in paying us. But then we iterated and the second time people said, well, we need a 30 day trial, but if your product did this, we would, gla I would gladly pay you 10 bucks. And I, I believe them. You can kind of tell that they really are interested. In that particular case, after the test was done, I said, great, thank you so much for your time. Here's your $100 check. Almost every single person that second round was like, so is this product live? Can I go use this now? I was like, no, 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 we're still building it. And they're like, can I give you my email? Can you email me? So that's like a indicator, right? The fact yeah. that they're proactively saying, hey, spam me when this product is out is an indicator. But you know, a lot of times when I'm talking about the Oprah technique, I'll get questions from Spock oriented people. Like, well, how do you really know Dan, <laughs> right? And so that's where actually when you get in market, at the end of the day, if you want to know it, it's re your retention rate basically is how you know it. And the way I sell it is, is this, is like, you know, you build a product, hopefully following this methodology, it's for a certain person to solve a certain pain point in a way that's better or different. If they actually get in there and use your product and kick the tires and they don't come back, then it means that you didn't meet their needs, right? I mean, just like they tried it, didn't quite do it for them. If instead they come in and they kick the tires and use your product, and then they come back and they use it again, and they use it again, and they use it again, that indicates that you have product market fit. And so the actual behavioral measure of that is retention rate. And what matters the most when you have a retention curve, it starts off at the beginning, you know, you immediately lose a big percentage of people that never come back. So it may start at like 60, 50, 40, 30% on people that could ever come back and use the product. And then it decays and goes down. And for most new products, it actually decays to zero. And we use the metaphor of a leaky bucket, right? The, the water in the bucket is your customers. If that retention curve goes down to zero, like say in 90 days, that means that all that water that you work so hard to build your product and get all those people in there eventually leak out. Conversely, if you've got product market fit, that retention curve will eventually flatten out at some asymptotic level. It may be like 5% or 10%, like 90 days out, but it flattens out and you manage to hold on to that water, those customers. And I do this awesome exercise where I throw three cohort curves and have everybody vote. And everybody always votes for the one that has the highest terminal value of retention rate. I'm like, wait a minute, do you guys, did you guys have a meeting without me and agree to vote on that one? Or did you guys have PhDs in retention rate? They just know, once you see it, you realize, oh, the higher percentage of people that come and use this product, the higher level of product market fit we have. So for those people that are really yearning for a solid definition of how do I know, that's how you know. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and that's where you can kind of put the gasoline on it, right? Because if you're spending so much money bringing a ton of people to the product, but, you, but you're losing them all out the bottom, then it's sort of not worthwhile. So I always say, like, get a funnel built, even if it's kind of like the most janky funnel that exists, because the rest of it is the game of inches. And that's where right. the quant, the Spock method, as right. you describe, becomes hyper valuable is to say, well, okay, could I get one more month of lifetime value mm -hmm. if we just did X and Y? Mm -hmm. And uh, in the beginning, it's much more manual, it's much more precious, it's much more about just getting people to stick around for mm -hmm. sure. Is there a sense, I mean, you've worked with so many startups, and again, this is another one of those unknowable questions, but something about you just makes me want to ask okay. you all the impossible questions. <laughs> How long should I expect as a startup to really be in this trying to get to product market fit. Because you know, the media creates these false expectations. It's like sure. tomorrow you're gonna get funded sure. and then you're gonna be sure. Facebook. Yeah. What is that timeline of just like iterating on, is this need, is it this feature, yeah. is this working? Yeah, 
Well, yeah, it's interesting. It's like, you know, in hindsight, it's like, oh my gosh, Twitter became huge overnight. Everything's overnight. You're just like, wow, it's just all of a sudden it came out of nowhere. And you go back and you realize, no, they actually, the founders were working on this for years maybe and like iterated and things like that. So it's hard to give it a precise time frame, but I think part of it, you know, it kind of depends on the skills on your team. And assuming, let's say, assuming you have all the skills you need, right? You have like a good product management person, a good subject matter expert, a good designer, a good developer, let's say you have those skills, right? And you go out there and form your hypotheses and you go and you test. It kind of comes down to how many times, you know, do you need to pivot or not? And how many times you need to pivot, right? And let's say best case scenario, you don't have to pivot. Let's just make this <laughs> yeah, the let's best say case that. scenario. That sounds yeah, good. You don't have to pivot. Now you have to iterate. And there's a difference between iteration and pivot. Pivoting means you are fundamentally changing one of those key layers of the pyramid. Like, oh no, we were all going after the wrong target customer. If you change a target customer, all the layers of the pyramid above it build on it and you just gotta start, you basically are starting from scratch again in a certain sense, right? Now maybe you pivoted because you found that that need that you thought this customer have, this other customer has, maybe you can keep the need the same, but you need to kind of revisit everything. Let me just um, pause you yeah. there because that's such a powerful visual that I don't want to get lost for our users because people talk a lot about pivoting and, mm -hmm. and do use that term incorrectly. But I like what you're describing, which is kind of like with development, like the cost of change increases the yeah. deeper in the foundation that's you right. go. Yeah. Same, I guess, in the pivot is if, yeah. if you go way back down to that core layer of no, we're going to go after, you know, doctors in the Midwest mm -hmm. now instead of millennials on the mm -hmm. West Coast. Everything Definitely. else is subject to change. Right. And a lot of companies start out B2C and pivot to B2B. That happens a lot. And when you do that, you know, a lot of things change. A yeah. lot of things change. Um, if you do that, that's like the extreme that you do. And it's also, I mean, a subtler version is a lot of people, um, like two of my clients, Box and you send it. They both started at B2C and then they pivoted to SMB and then they worked their way up enterprise. So, so if you, in the pursuit of improving your business, you could deliberately be changing who it is in meeting your goals and trying to drive higher revenue per user in bigger markets, right? right? You might be changing it. So that's an adaptation that you have to do. When you're doing B2C, there's no sales team, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's all about more um, online marketing and things like that. And as you get up to enterprise, well, now you need a sales team. So things can change. But going back to, let's assume, you know, so there's iteration where you're just like, hey, we didn't really change. We're just refining, you know, uh, what we've got and, and making small iterations, not pivoting. You know, gosh, let's say, you know, maybe a few months to do good discovery and get really clear on your target market. You know, maybe a few months, I'm saying a few to be a little vague, like one to three maybe, all right? Um, to create some initial designs and Including run them by- testing. Yeah, and then test them with users and rinse and repeat, right? I mean, I guess a counterpoint, a counterpoint is the example that I share in marketingreport.com in the book. It took us four weeks because we weren't doing any coding, right? And because we did it very, very methodically, uh, it took us four weeks to get to basically a set of clickable uh, mock-ups, a prototype that we felt pretty good about, that we had validated with customers and they said basically, hey, we would pay 10 bucks a month for it, right? So that's, now I was no coding yet, so now the question is how long would it take to code that, right? And that's another variable. It's hard to say how long it would take to code. It depends on the complexity and scope of your product. But um, certainly I could see it being done in a year. If, you do, if everything's great, you don't need to pivot, you have the skills, you know, you start out at a good starting point, less than a year. Realistically, one of those things is not gonna be true. You're gonna be missing some skills on your team. Yeah. You're gonna to have to pivot something. Things are gonna take a little longer. You know, There's different opinions about which direction to go between the founders or the board, and so you have to sort that out. Sometimes you're exploring multiple directions. You're getting distracted by things that don't really matter. You know, 
or, or right. you're bootstrapping and well, so you've got all that uh, velocity of going to your other job. And, yeah, or you've got to go focus your time and energy on fundraising or whatever it is, sure. right? So yeah. Yeah, I think that it's probably a relief, certainly for some of the entrepreneurs listening in going, oh, good, because some people are at a long time and, sure. and there are those other variables. And I think it is important to be real about the it's fun product, but it's challenging. Mm -hmm. Well, conversely, what I see, too, is people that uh, they're afraid to commit to a direction. Like, I've, you know, I live in Silicon Valley, so I go to some, you know, uh, tech happy hour or something. Like, hey, how's your startup going? Oh, it's great. We're pivoted to chatbots. I'm like, oh, cool. I see the same person three months ago. Oh, yeah. Hey, we're pivoted to uh, deep learning. You know, uh, hey. they never actually launch your product, right? right? So I like to say if you pivot four times, you've gone in a circle, basically, right? So, <laughs> so you got to, it's, it's this tough thing. It's this tough thing of like, how do I know? So one, you got to commit. You, you got to get in market. Get out there talking to people that they will guide you, right? And if you're just in the building hypothesizing, you can spin your wheels and spin your needle around where you're going. Um, it's just important to get out there and talk to people basically. Yeah. Well, I think that's, again, that's another one of those fear mechanisms that we spoke about, like with features. It's if I just keep adding features and polishing up the stone, then I'll never have to run the risk that somebody says no. And it's like, someone's going to say, no, I want to kind of get out there in front of it. Same with the strategy. So. Right. For sure. Let's, uh, I just have a couple questions left for you, Dan. The first is with regards to kind of the work that you do out in the world. So when you're not busy sort of touring around and, and giving workshops and giving talks, you actually consult startups. And my understanding is that a lot of what you do is sort of come in as the first product manager or kind of fractional product manager, help to bring a product management centric uh, viewpoint to the organization and then ideally they insource kind of a team and then you extract yourself That's and right. say thank you. So my question is when does an organization need you or how are you helping them to understand when they need you? Mm -hmm. When is the right time mm -hmm. for a startup to bring in a product person? Yeah, I, yeah, I basically consult full time. I'm often an interim VP of product. There are two main types of situations that I help companies with. One actually it's uh, less than the startup focus work that I do, but it's actually a later stage startup or a bigger company that realizes they're not as lean and agile and customer centric as they want. And so sometimes I'll go in there. In that case, they usually have a product team or product leader and I'm brought in to help elevate the skills, assess the skills and coach and improve the skills on the team itself. So that's one set of engagements. The ones that I do more is usually joining a startup. It's almost very frequently post-series A. And I think that, so I did this at Box, I did this at You Send It. And like you said, I'll come in post-series A. Usually they don't have anyone who's really been in product management. Maybe one of the founders has been wearing that hat, but they're not really, don't have deep expertise in it. Like one of my clients, the founder's really smart guy, great guy, after they raised the funding, he had to focus on like other operational issues. And so the devs were kind of like sitting there twilling their thumbs a bit going, okay, like we used to be able to have meetings with you every week, but now you got too busy. So one thing is if, if as a founder or CEO, you used to have a little bit of bandwidth for product and now you suddenly feel like you don't, right? Our PM's job is always to make sure that the devs are working on the highest ROI stuff and that we've got, we stay like one step ahead of them on the backlog, that they always have something meaningful and valuable to do. So if you feel like, gosh, you know, uh, I'm just not able to do that anymore because of other demands. And that might be a good time to bring someone in. Conversely, the other thing I see is sometimes you have CEOs that are big picture idea people. And they go, okay, we just want to do this thing. And they get on a whiteboard and they wave their hands and they kind of draw some stuff <laughs> and they say it verbally. And then there's the dev sitting there. It's like, okay, great, go build it, guys, right? There's a big gap between yeah. a CEO's kind of verbal high-level vision on a whiteboard and then the poor developers have to figure out, okay, what does that mean from a feature set? And often there's no designers in the equation either. So it's like, 
it's just like a recipe for disappointment. And then, you know, three weeks later, the CEO's like, okay, what you got? It's like, um, well, we're not really quite sure what we need to do, right? So filling that void, what I do too, what I learned early in my career is UX design is super important. That's why my book, even though it's not a UX design book, has a chapter on UX design because it really matters um, to build a successful product. Again, you can have the best functionality, but if the UX design is poor, it's gonna get in the way of people seeing the value. So I also will like, I will basically like create balsamics and create wireframes, right? And I usually partner with the visual designer, but um, to help fill that design gap that's there as well. And then, you know, I usually help them. I'm kind of like a CEO whisperer. I'm like, okay, tell me your thoughts about your product <laughs> strategy. Tell me your roadmap ideas. And then I'll formulate them in a real roadmap and iterate and they go, oh yeah, that's what I want to do over the next nine months. I'm like, great. Then I'll turn around and I'll write, you know, short product briefs on each one and I'll write the JIRA tickets and sit with the devs. But before that, I'll actually create wireframes and go and test with customers, you know, conduct the research and iterate. So it's a lot of fun. Then usually by, uh, usually it goes from series A to series B, about 12 to 18 months. And, and when series B rolls around, they're like, damn, thank you so much. We have an awesome roadmap. We have our MVP out. You know, we've got our analytics in place. This is great. We understand product management now. Now I want to hire a full-time VP product. And then I'll help them like formulate the job description. I'll even help source them. I have a very strong network. And then I'll transition that person and then right off into the sunset and work on the next client. So I think all of our listeners are going to like want to reach out to me. Can I be part of your network? <laughs> where you're, you're the guy that just gets everyone PM jobs, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's actually funny. I actually recently, so there's a lot of demand. I kind of operate the VP level. Usually the CEO or product leader brings me in. There's a lot of demand at uh, the senior PM level. So I recently actually added a senior PM consultant to my practice. So that's pretty cool to help be able to help clients. And he and I, when we work at the same client, we can kind of tag team. I can engage with the board and the exec team about strategy, and then he can work more with the, the engineers and, de and designers on uh, tactical execution. Yeah, super exciting. So uh, if we're interested in those consulting services, where do we go? My website is dan-olsen.com, D-A-N-O-L-S-E-N.com. I got blog posts there. I've got my videos from my talks there. Uh, I also run a meetup down in uh, Mountain View, Palo Alto. We have like 6,000 product managers and designers. I bring in top speakers every month. That's highlighted there. My official consulting site is olsensolutions.com, but either site you can learn about it. Okay, awesome. Just one last question. I, I, so I think what I love about the book is, as I've said before, I know I'm gushing a little, is how practical it is. And for entrepreneurs, I mean, I, I think that my practice is just going to be like giving one to every client that comes in the door and say, you go away and read this and then come back when, when you kind of want to talk. But I imagine that a lot of the folks in your audience, certainly a lot of the folks listening in are product managers. And product managers subscribe to these ideas, they're gonna read your book if they haven't already, and then they're gonna you know, really subscribe to the ideas. What advice can you offer to somebody who is a product manager themselves, whether it's VP of product or senior PM, and they wanna be lean, and they want to take this practical approach to getting a product market fit, but they don't have the buy-in or the philosophical buy-in from the key stakeholders. I mean, aside from giving the, their, their stakeholders sure, a copy, sure. what would you tell a PM to solve that problem? Yeah, and usually, I mean, I think it's good to think about what are the underlying reasons why they're in that situation, and it's typically because they may be the only or one of the only product management focused people there, or people that have experience in that. So if the CEO was a product back person, if you're at a startup, for example, you might not be having some of these debates. So you gotta recognize that a lot of it probably comes from somebody not having worked in a place where they've done these practices well. And so they just don't know what they don't know, right? And so I think it's largely an education thing. Then that comes down to your credibility. If you're just like, hey, I'm like the lowly PM trying to tell these people 
how we should be doing it, what best practices are, you know, sometimes there might be a credibility issue. They just won't listen to you as much as they should, right? And so that's where third party, you know, pointing at third party benchmarks or experts can help. It's like, okay, well, let's see how, you know, Slack organizes their product teams. So there's a lot of like, you know, whether it's Intercom or Slack, a lot of companies are actually sharing how they do the, the art and science of building products. Yeah. And so then it's not just you PM at the company. It's like, no, look, these guys are doing it. And, and there's enough pointers out there and people talking about it. There's enough consistency. Like when you hear a lot of the top product speakers talk, there's a lot of consistency about focus on the customer, problem space, UX design matters, get out of the building, talk to customers. There's a lot of commonality there, right? So hopefully that can help. Um, the other thing for bigger orgs especially is, you know, I, have, I get that same question from a lot of product leaders and they feel like they keep beating the drum and no one's listening to it is, you know, potentially do like a little brown bag, like just bring in outside experts, whether it's consultants like me or authors or speakers or a VP of product from a different company that's not a competitor, you know, just kind of like do it more socially and, you know, versus like hit people over the head with it. It's like, oh, let's do a brown bag, you know, maybe get them to come to a product conference. Like we're here at industry, maybe, you know, get some non-product person to tag along to get a little understanding and empathy. But I'm definitely sympathetic to that, to that cause. Sometimes the biggest motivator is failure. You know, um, it's like, hey, we tried for nine months to launch that, you know, new product and it just, we fell flat on our face. Can we at least, you don't need to rub it in, but like rub it, satay to people, maybe, you know, that didn't work out. Maybe we need to try something different, right? So fear and failure can be good motivators. Because mm-hmm. um, if things are going well, then people are reluctant to change. So, you know, I think it's either fear and failure or showing people that there's like a better way by pointing to other people out there that are kind of crushing it and saying, oh, look how they're doing it. Can we agree that these guys are successful? Why do we think they're successful? I think a lot of it too is just asking why. I think why is one of the most important questions. So it's like, if a stakeholder wants to do a certain thing, it's like, oh, hey, can you help me? Not say why in a challenging way, hey, can you help me understand why you feel that's important? And you'll see if they have a solid foundation of a pyramid as why, or it's just like, no, it's just, there's not much behind it there, right? So. Getting, kind of getting Socratic and using the same techniques, like say, well, great, what's your, it sounds like there's a hypothesis behind why you want to do that. <laughs> what is that hypothesis? And then how might we get evidence to support or refute that hypothesis, right? If you can try to get that. And at the end of the day, look, if you're in a place that fundamentally doesn't care about the truth or this kind of scientific approach, maybe you need to go to some place that does, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Dan Olson, author of The Lean Product Playbook. We'll put the links in the show notes. The book has already been recommended by so many of our guests, 100productmanagers.com slash resources. Thank you for being a part of our show. Thanks a lot. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to 100PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please help us get discovered by leaving a five-star rating and review right from your podcast app. Our mission is to help you excel at product management. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great free resources to help you on your path, including all of the recommendations from our fabulous guests week over week. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode.